Hear now the word of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, our need is great, but your grace is greater. As we look at the teachings and claims of Jesus this morning, would you make us receptive Would you change and shape us by your spirit and according to your will? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, we think of 2020 and we think of it as such a secular time. We think of it as such a time, such a godless time. And uh, and I don't entirely think that's mistaken. But as interesting as that is and as true as that may be, I think it is still very largely unusual for us to hear people speak badly of Jesus. Uh, They may not like Jesus, and they may not like Jesus if they really got to know Jesus. Uh, They may not like aspects of his teaching, but people in our day generally sort of give a grudging appreciation of Jesus at the very least. Um, Very rarely do you hear unbelievers actually insult Jesus or speak openly against Jesus. Usually, they want to make the the conversation about us as Christians, um, not Jesus. And of course, they want to talk about what huge disappointments we must be to our Lord, which on one level, we are disappointments to our Lord. But while Jesus was living on this earth, that really wasn't the case. He didn't get this sort of grudging appreciation from people. People spoke very badly about Jesus. Sometimes, in fact, often they spoke badly of Jesus behind his back. But oftentimes they spoke badly of him to his face. And this morning is one of those moments where Jesus is being insulted to his face. And he's being spoken of directly in front of him. The conversation up to this point was focused on the Pharisees. It was focused on the nature of their unbelief. And Jesus says to them basically in the last conversation that he had, he said, I know you're trying to kill me. And that's because you're not really Abraham's children. That was the the conversation last week. But, But when Jesus says this, 
you know, it's not like he can just say that and then walk away. There's going to be a response. See, he, he has lit the fuse for the Pharisees, um, them's fighting words, as they say. You know, he has just thrown the gauntlet down when he has said this about them. And so our reading this morning is their return volley in response. Um, and so Jesus is accused of being a demon-possessed Samaritan. This is as sharp as they can possibly get. This is as nasty as they can manage. So they say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, they're referring to something they're saying. But if you notice, this is actually the first time in John's gospel that they've called him a Samaritan. And so it sounds like what they're saying is this. We've been calling you a Samaritan for a while now, Jesus. (laughs) We weren't sure if it was true, but we were saying it about you. And now we feel much better about the fact that we've been saying these things about you, Jesus. You know, they have been talking about Jesus and saying things. They didn't actually know if they were right. Um, It's sort of like if you post something on Facebook and you say, I don't know if this is true, but I agree with it. So I'm going to share it. (laughs) The Pharisees haven't known if it's true, but they have been sharing it now for a while. This is this is the Pharisees' uh, method here. We'll talk about Jesus, then we'll find out if what we've been talking about Jesus is actually true. So they have been posting about Jesus, not knowing if it's true. Um, but this moment makes them, them sort of feel like, yeah, it turns out we were right. All that stuff on my wall, it turns out I was, was right after the fact. And so they sort of feel like their biases have been confirmed at this point. Now they have the evidence. Now they have the smoking gun. They say, this guy is a Samaritan and he's got a demon on top of him. To be called a Samaritan was, it was meant to be a deep insult. It was meant to be a deep insult because... The Jewish people of this time saw the Samaritans as apostates. They saw them as people who twisted the law of God. So what do they do here? They retreat to name-calling. I do not think that the Pharisees really believe he's literally a Samaritan, but they've been saying this as a derogatory term. They're using it as an insult. Um, one of the things Calvin points out is that name-calling is the last vestige of the person who has no good argument. And they don't have a good argument against Jesus, but they are ready to call names. And by the way, if you, if you aspire to be a godly person, if you want to be somebody who follows the Lord, you need to be prepared to hear whispers and gossips and whisper campaigns against you. Um, if it happened to Jesus, elsewhere Jesus says, if this happened to me, you shouldn't expect that you're going to be treated better than I was treated. Um, And so Jesus gives this simple response. He rejects their whole theory about him. He says, wrong, wrong, wrong. I am not demon possessed. But but be careful because you are dishonoring your only hope in what you're saying about me. And then he turns his attention to himself and what motivates himself and why he's doing what he does. If he's not demon possessed, if he's not a Samaritan, then what explains how he can talk to these religious leaders as if they are sons of the devil instead of sons of Abraham? Well, Jesus says, I live for my heavenly father. He says, I love the father's glory. I only want to see the father exalted. What drives Jesus is different than what is driving the Pharisees. To make his point, 
He turns the conversation to ancient history. And so think about this. He, he starts talking about Abraham. Think of how, how ancient Abraham was even to Jesus. We think of Abraham as ancient. But I also think we think of the time of Christ as ancient. 2,000 years ago, that qualifies as ancient for us, right? Well, from Jesus' standpoint in history there at 33 AD probably, uh, Abraham would have been 2,000 years before him. So as far back as Jesus is to us, Abraham was to Jesus at this time. And so he goes back into ancient history at this point. And, and all I want us to do this morning is I just want us to focus on Abraham and what Jesus says Abraham saw, how Jesus says Abraham responded to what he saw. That's the first point. And then in the second point, I want us to fixate on what Jesus says about himself in the interaction. So, so the outline is just two points, Abraham the believer and Christ the I am. Let's just look at how Jesus sort of substantiates this conversation here. What did Abraham know and who does that mean Jesus is? First, Jesus explicitly teaches that Abraham was a believer in him. He says Abraham was a believer in Jesus. Um, To put it very bluntly, maybe a little anachronistically, an anachronism is when you use a phrase that wouldn't have made sense at the time you're talking about. So there are no Christians in the time of Abraham, but I'm going to use the phrase anyway. Jesus is basically saying Abraham was like a Christian. Abraham was a Christian. And so in verse 56, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Notice the content of what Jesus says that Abraham saw. He says, he saw my day. He saw my day. Abraham and all the Old Testament saints only had forward-looking expectations. There was nothing in history they could look back to and say, oh, there's salvation back there. All they could see in the rearview mirror behind them in redemptive history was death. All they could see was failure. That's what they would see every time they look back. And so they have no direction to look but forward. You see this in Old Testament saints, even the ones very close to the time of Jesus. One of the most striking people in the New Testament is Simeon. I don't know how much you ever think about Simeon, but Simeon is a very special person because in Luke chapter 2, Luke writes about Simeon. And Simeon was a righteous man who had the spirit, and the text says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And, And think about this. This man knew that Jesus was coming. This man knew that Jesus had not come yet. And he sees the baby Jesus. And he holds the baby Jesus in his arm. And do you remember Simeon's prayer as he's holding the baby Jesus? He is saying, in essence, in his prayer, all my hope for the coming Savior has come true in this moment that I'm holding this child in my hands. What does he say? Listen to this. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He has been looking forward to this moment where he's holding the child. 
He's seen the fulfillment of this thing that he's lived with for years, thinking someday a Savior is going to come. Someday a Savior is going to come. And now here he is, and he's holding the child in his arms. So this is a man who is ready to die now because he is one of the last people on earth who looked forward to Jesus. He was the last who had to because everyone after Simeon saw Jesus in person or looked back to Jesus like we do today. Why is Abraham so much at the center of this argument happening here? Well, the answer goes back to the idea of covenants. Covenants are an agreement between two parties where one party agrees to do something and they also promise that if they don't keep that agreement, that something terrible is going to happen to them. Covenants happen all over the Bible. They happen between people, but they also happen between God and men. God relates to human beings through covenants. One of the earliest covenants, not the first, but one of the earliest covenants in the Bible is the covenant God makes with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And in that chapter, in a sense, Abraham becomes the father of the Jews and he becomes the father of the church. He becomes our father. This is what makes this conversation this morning in the text so significant. Jesus and the Pharisees aren't just talking about anybody. They're talking about their literal father and they're talking about who should be their spiritual father too. They're supposed to be part of that covenant. They're supposed to be Abraham's children. One of my, in fact, I think the only song I remember from Sunday school that I was taught was Father Abraham had many sons And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. And then you do all the crazy stuff. Stomp your feet and dance around and stuff. I got taught covenant theology at a church that didn't even believe in covenant theology. It was great. Uh, The Lord is good. So so Abraham is, is in this covenant with God, and so are all of his children, and so are all of their children. So it is very significant when Jesus says, Abraham saw my day. How did he see Abraham's day? Well, Augustine is, wants us to know that he didn't, it's not like he could see through time. It's not like he had, saw a literal image of Jesus from 2,000 years before. A- Abraham saw Jesus with his understanding. He knew Jesus was coming and he saw Jesus with the eyes of faith. Uh, If you read the early church fathers and they're talking about this passage, one of the great things I did when I was preparing, and I'm not going to show you all of my work uh, because that's like going into the kitchen and watching the chef do everything. But when I was reading, it was just church father after church father suggesting events in Abraham's life that show Jesus to Abraham so that you know how Abraham knew Jesus and saw Jesus. And and I'm just going to give you a couple just a couple of things the church fathers mention. And when I say church fathers, I mean close to 2,000 years ago. We're not talking about even the reformers. Um, the church fathers point out Abraham knew that Jesus was coming because of this promise that he heard in Genesis 12. In your seed will all nations of the earth be blessed. So this is a, this is a promise of Christ. And Abraham heard it directly from the mouth of God. Jesus would be the seed that God was talking about. They also point to the sacrifice of Isaac when God called Abraham to put Isaac to death. And you remember this moment. It's a striking moment in the life of of Abraham. Kierkegaard wrote a whole book called Fear and Trembling about this moment. 
And, and Abraham reminds his son at, when the moment comes. What does Abraham say to Isaac? He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And then you remember that God spared Isaac and provided a literal lamb that Abraham sacrificed instead. But think about this. What did Abraham name that mountain? He gave that mountain a name. He called it, the Lord will provide. Even though the redemptive moment happened and the lamb was provided, he didn't name the mountain, the Lord provided. He named the mountain, the Lord will provide. What's happening there? He's got his lamb. He's told his son, the Lord will provide a lamb. And yet when he comes to name the mountain, it's as if he's saying, I'm still waiting on the lamb. I'm still waiting on the lamb. He says the Lord will provide is the name of the mountain. He is not looking backward. He is looking forward even as he is naming this mountain. Later on, when the reformers looked at this passage too, their argument was this is the moment of revelation for Abraham. He realizes not only will God spare Isaac, but he'll spare anyone who puts his trust in the sacrifice. One writer says, Abraham no doubt saw the day of Christ when he was about to sacrifice his son. So Abraham knew of Christ. He saw Christ in the sense that he knew he was coming. And Abraham, what did he do? He took hold of Christ by faith 2,000 years before. By the way, if you ever think the distance of time is frustrating to you, you think I, I, it's frustrating to me that I would trust in a Savior who was here 2,000 years ago. Imagine the frustration of being Abraham and seeing the promise not yet fulfilled at all. And all you can do is look forward. So time has always been an issue for believers. We have always had to deal with the fact that there is distance between the moment that we look forward to and the moment we are in right now. If you read Romans 4, Paul also makes an argument that Abraham was a believer in the promise of God. You could read that as well. Just over and over again, repeatedly, we see in the Bible, Abraham knew the gospel and Abraham believed the gospel. I want you to notice this, though. Notice what he does with that knowledge. He is not just someone who knew the gospel. He is someone, Jesus says, who rejoiced in the gospel. He rejoiced to see Jesus' day. See, it doesn't just stop at knowing about Jesus, having information about Jesus, because Jesus says Abraham actually rejoiced. Can you imagine this? Abraham, back in the book of Genesis, living his life and walking around with joy in his heart because he knows the Savior's coming. He is, he, he is fueled by knowledge that Jesus is coming someday. Listen to how Augustine puts this. By the way, I, I don't like doing block quotes. I think they distract. They sometimes bring a sermon to a halt even. Um, but he says it so well that I'm willing to take the risk of grinding things to a halt. Augustine's talking about what Abraham rejoiced in. Listen to what he says. Who can unfold this joy, my brethren, if those rejoiced whose bodily eyes were opened by the Lord, what joy was his who saw with the eyes of his soul the light ineffable, the abiding word, the brilliance that dazzles the minds of the pious, the unfailing wisdom, God abiding with the Father and at some time to come in the flesh. 
All this did Abraham see. All this did Abraham see. He rejoiced in it. He saw it and he rejoiced in it. Time is no obstacle to rejoicing in Jesus. Um, There's another church father. I'm going to tell you his name because it's so fun to say and it has six syllables in it. His his name is Ocalampadius. Learn that name and and pull it out at parties. Um, Ocalampadius. I wouldn't say say his name or read the quote if it wasn't so good, but here's what he says. It is clear that the ancestors of the old covenant were saved by the same faith that we also are saved, namely by faith in Christ. Abraham believed that Christ was to come, and we believe that he has come. What does saving faith look like? It looks like more than a well-studied mind. It's more than an intellectual belief. It is more than just ascending to inf- assenting to information. It also looks like a rejoicing heart. The Pharisees see Jesus as day two. And they do not rejoice. That is a problem. See, if Abraham rejoiced to understand Christ and his promise, we should be no different. That's, that's one little bit, very simple application. We should rejoice too. The faith that saves is a faith that rejoices. And this is true regardless of how far we are before or after the cross. Faith in the crucified and risen Jesus has always been God's way of saving his people. It has not changed since the day we fell in the Garden of Eden, and it will not change until the day that we see him face to face. That's the first point this morning. Abraham the believer. Let's follow Abraham's example and place our faith in Christ alone. The second prominent feature of our passage, though, it's really hard to miss. Because it's the thing that gets him almost stoned. (laughs) Uh, It's really hard to miss. Christ the I am. See, buried in this whole conversation is this nugget of truth that Jesus is preexistent. And and in more, which we'll get to. How, How does that come out? Well, the Pharisees hear Jesus say that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And they misunderstand. By the way. Notice how the Pharisees misunderstand. They say, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Look, they're more impressed at the idea that Jesus saw Abraham than they are at the idea that Abraham saw Jesus. But they fixate on this. They fixate on this because Jesus has this knowledge of Abraham that he could only have gained through firsthand knowledge, so they think. And so, and by the way, Jesus could have responded any, any number of ways, right? He could have quoted from Genesis, and he could have shown them how Abraham already knew about Jesus that way. Um, if they just knew their Bibles better, they would already know this for themselves. Um, he could have made a, a naked appeal to authority and said, uh, look, the Father told me. And that would have been a legitimate argument as well. But instead, he takes the opportunity to make this about himself And his nature. They say, you're not that old. You're not old enough to have this information. And Jesus says in verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Think about what this means. It means at least two things. It means more than two things. But it means at least two things. The first thing thing it means is that Jesus is claiming Pre-existence. 
When we talk about pre-existence, we're using a fancy theological term, but what it basically means is that Jesus existed before he was born. Um, now, this is not true of us. We, are, we do not exist before we're born. We don't exist until we are conceived in our mother's womb. Once we are conceived, then we exist, right? We come into existence in that moment. And, and from that moment on that we are conceived, we are immortals made in God's image. But we don't exist before that. So we are not pre-existent. This is something that's not true of us, but pre-existence is true of Jesus. John has already been getting us ready to hear this. Uh, he did it in the very first verse of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So John is, is setting us up to be prepared to learn these things about Jesus. Think about this. He was born after the beginning, and he was in the beginning, which means that he existed before he was born. That's why we say Jesus is pre-existent. So, so as readers, we shouldn't be shocked to hear this. But you can see from the reaction of the Pharisees that they are not calm about this. <laughs> it's a big deal. But Jesus is claiming a second thing for himself. He's claiming something even more than pre-existence. Think about this. Pre-existence is something angels have, right? Angels exist. Uh, they exist, probably existed even uh, at the time of creation. Um, but before Abraham was, angels existed, right? Without his full answer that Jesus gives, maybe Jesus could be mistaken for an angel. Except not, because he goes further. He uses improper Greek in his reply, because he says, before Abraham was, I am. And we hear that, and we think someone needs to fix his English. That's maybe your first response, uh, especially if you're kind of a, a, kind of a strickler when it comes to grammar. Um, the thing is, it has to be translated this way because it is this way in the Greek. In the Greek, it's just ego, I, me. It just, I am. And, and by the way, it's improper Greek, it's improper English, right? Because we would say, before Abraham was, I was. And, and if we did that, we would, still be, we would still be winning the argument. We would be uh, affirming our preexistence and answering their objection that Jesus isn't that old. And, but see, Jesus is doing more than just answering their objection. He decides to speak of himself in the past tense, but he uses the predicate, I am. This is the name that God taught to Moses in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Moses meets God in the form of the bush. And Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you, sent me to you. So in the Hebrew, the verb is future tense. But it's used as if it's present tense. So, so the idea here is not just he's God and he's got a different name. The idea here is that God is eternal. He exists along a perpetual duration of time that is always present and always future and always past. It doesn't even make sense to mention a duration of time with God. Um, it's like God is saying, I am, I was, I will always be. So when God calls himself I am, understand what this means. It means our God is eternal. Our God is not in a process of becoming. 
He is an eternal being with no beginning, no middle, and no end. Augustine said it this way. Bring a lot of church fathers in here today. To God, all things are present. Your today is eternity. Eternity itself is the substance of God, which has in it nothing that is changeable. Thomas Aquinas, God's eternity is a complete and full possession of endless life. For God, there are no moments. There's no moment. For you, all of life is a moment. For God, there are no moments. There simply was, is, will be all things at all times, and he contains them all as a possession of his own. There is no yesterday for God. There is no today for God. There is no tomorrow for God. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he is saying all of that about himself. This was strikingly incredible language for God to use when speaking to Moses. And because of that, it endured in Israel's memory. They remembered forever. That God called himself I am. And so when Jesus applies it to himself, the response is immediate. They don't have to go digging through the books and go, wait a minute. Isn't he quoting from Exodus chapter 3? He is. They didn't have to do that. Because they remembered. You don't forget a statement like I am. Herman Bobbing puts the problem about as well as you could. He says, if a person spoke of himself in the way Jesus regularly did, if others venerated a person the way the prophets and apostles do Christ, then everyone would consider it insane fanaticism or horrendous blasphemy. That's the problem. Here's the real question. It's not whether there's a problem. The question is, is it true? That's the question. Just... Consider who our Lord Jesus Christ is according to the Bible. And by the way, the Bible is the best and only way for us to know these things. If you go to the man on the street, he doesn't have a Bible, and you ask him, tell me who Jesus is, he can't tell you anything about Jesus. We are at the mercy of our God and at the mercy of his scriptures to know him. So what does the Bible say about Jesus? Bavink summarizes it better than me. Again, I'm going to Bavink a little too much, but just listen. He says, Scripture attributes to Christ personal preexistence, divine sonship, the creation and sustaining of all things, the acquisition of all and everyone, of all wealth and salvation, kingship in the church, dominion over all things, and judgment upon the living and dead. It calls him directly and ambiguously by the name God. That's a summary of what the Bible says about Jesus. So what Jesus is saying is true. He is not only a mortal man with a mortal body. He is a person who has a divine nature. And in this moment, he is unambiguously telling the truth. He's not shading it. He's not hiding it. He's not disguising it. He's not being clever. He's not being political. He is setting it all out there in front of them. If they ever want to know who he is, there's no better answer they can find than this moment right here. The question is, How do the Pharisees respond to that? They have grilled Jesus. They have quizzed Jesus. They have accused him of being a demon. Now they know the truth. What will they do with that truth? The sad response is absolute unbelief. They know what all of this means. There's no debate. There's no discussion. Their muscle memory kicks in. We know what we do with people who say they are I am in Israel. 
They reject Jesus. They refuse to follow Abraham's lead. They will not put their faith in this one that Abraham trusted in. What's the real application here? The application here is the thing that Jesus wants for these people he's talking to. What does he want from them more than anything else? He wants them to rejoice to see his day. Follow the lead of Abraham. They're seeing something that Abraham yearned to see. They're witnessing something majestic, something wonderful, something that should be bringing tears to their eyes. And instead they shut their eyes and shut their ears to the privilege that's been set before them. And their only response is to take this precious pearl that's been handed to them and they throw it in the mud. We've got that same privilege right now. The Savior is here. The only difference is a matter of time. He has come into this world. He has stood upon this ground. He has looked up at the same sun and the same moon that we look up at. And he sat before us here this morning. How will we respond? That's what changes everything. How will we respond? See, to Jesus, the response matters. It's why the Pharisees grieve him so much. This is their opportunity. Now, Jesus is not in the habit of hiding himself. And he does hide himself from the ones who reject him. You may not be a follower of Jesus. Um, It is not unheard of for an unbeliever to attend church. It is not unheard of for an unbeliever to grow up in the church. You may have heard the Bible taught. You may have heard it preached for years. You may have come to church for years. But it's also possible to do all of those things and not commit to God. It's possible to go through all of those motions and resist God. To refuse to follow Christ. To to refuse to commit. Here's the message though. It's in the word because for you... It's not too late. It's not too late to accept the invitation. It's not too late to refuse to be like the Pharisees. Set your eyes on the one that Abraham yearned to see. Who Jesus is assures us that he can save to the uttermost all of those who come to him. It's only because of who Jesus is. Because he is the I am of Exodus that the promise from even before Abraham can come true and and be true. St. Augustine, got to keep bringing him in. Name one of my kids after him. Got to bring Augustine in every now and then. St. Augustine, in one of his sermons on this passage, reminds us that, yes, Jesus hid himself from his enemies here. But he did it in response to their rejection. As man, he fled from the stones. But woe to those from whose stony hearts God has fled. If you reject God, you will be rejected by God. Here's the reminder. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't make excuses. Follow Jesus today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are your truths. This is your son. This is your plan of salvation. This is how you have designed to rescue your people from the darkest pit of sorrow and desperation. Would you help us to believe it this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.